0: you know from the letters i got home you could there was protesters but i didn't think it was that bad coming home was like coming home to, from a, to a different country in 68 it seemed like there was so much going on back home that i didn't know about that it was uh, martin luther king had been assassinated robert kennedy had been assassinated i didn't know any of that and the people themselves they didn't look like the same they had all long hair they're all screaming uh Get back on the plane, your baby killer, uh, throwing tomatoes at you. You name it, that's what they did. Mainly on the West Coast. When I got back home, did I change that sense? I know I was spit on both times. Once in California when I uh, was waiting in the airport in San Francisco to go home and another time when I arrived in Newark, New Jersey. And I, I think what happened there is like uh you, you see it today back then they were shooting the messenger well as soldiers we were the messengers it's a little different now and i and i think that was one of the lessons learned from the vietnam uh, war uh, is that you don't shoot the messenger uh, the soldiers don't make the war we don't make foreign policy it's your politicians that do welcome to the 12th podcast of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay, as always, and I am joined once again by Dr. Malcolm Craig. Uh, Hello again, Mark. So here we are at the end of yet another term. Um, So this is, what, our fifth year finishing the kind of big American History 2 survey course, but I know this has also been the first year where you've taught two honours courses. Um, How have you found the experience?
1: That's been uh, fantastic. Actually, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, an honours course, I mean, unlike the, the big survey course, which is all the way from colonial America, right the way to, well, the war on terror, yep. essentially the lectures end that. Uh, honours courses allow you to focus much more tightly uh, on very kind of specific areas. So it's been a fantastic experience. The, the students have been great. I uh, really enjoyed teaching them. And I think it's the old adage that the only way to really learn is to teach. Mm-hmm.
0: Has been has been really so, great. So have you found that you know, like you know, a lot of history books they they'll preface it with saying you know they'll thank lots of people and then they'll thank their students who yeah. have given them new ideas. Have you found that that's actually true? Ab-
1: Absolutely, yeah. I I found that especially due doing class presentations, for example, or debates in class, students will say stuff like, "I never thought of that interpretation." And it also forces you to go back to the historiography, go back to the primary sources that you've maybe not looked at for a few years, and you can you assume you know what they say, and you go back and you reevaluate them and reassess them, and you're like, oh, actually, this provokes me to think differently about this topic and all that thing. Kind of. So it's also been a it's been a learning experience for me as well. I've I found so much so much out and learned so much purely by the process of teaching my last semester course, which was on nuclear issues in the Cold War, and this this semester's course, which was on US-UK relations from 1945 to the, the end of the War on Terror. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's true as well. In second year, I mean, like I, I've learned quite a lot, even from my presentations. I didn't even know there were jazz ambassadors for the Cold War. That was something I learned this year. And uh, also that Ronald Reagan was an avid doodler, so... There's uh, there's been many things that
1: that's in, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I had a student do in my one of my honors classes do the uh, the jazz ambassadors yeah. coming over to the UK from the US as a as a presentation in uh, the, in my US UK relations course looking at oh, the 1950s right. okay. and everything.
0: Ah well, there you go. Um, so I mean, just to kind of move it along a wee bit, um, you, you you like you know we we got some good constructive criticism on the on the podcast. Absolutely, yeah. Briefly about. Um, from, from my friend Ailey that you know perhaps
1: we, hello Ailey. <laughs>
0: yes we we've we focused a wee bit too much on the kind of high power aspect the sort of you know almost I would like to say we haven't done a great white mans school of history but you know at times we've been close and and you know you wanted to say a, a wee bit about that Malcolm
1: yeah no no absolutely and I think these criticisms are are entirely valid uh, and, and in one way we've been we've been doing this because we're following the course we're teaching at the moment. And that's going to change up now that we've kind of done the first, you know, two semesters of the, of the podcast. I think we'll, we'll change things, make things a bit different. You know, over the summer, we'll be doing different topics. When we get on to next academic year, we'll be doing different topics. Mm-hmm. But I think on one hand, the criticism is entirely valid. Yes, we have focused a lot on president presidents, mm-hmm. on big picture stuff, all that kind of thing, primarily for the benefit of our undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think on one hand, you have to look at those kind of things because these are key individuals making key decisions that affect millions of people. This is what's
0: dominating the headlines at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, whether it's Andrew Jackson and the Indian Removal Act or Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, these are decisions that affect the lives of many, many, many people. But I totally take on board the, the criticism that we have perhaps ignored in many of our podcasts uh, you know minority groups or politically marginalized groups or the role of uh, protests, the role of subcultures, all that kind of thing. So whether that is uh, African Americans in terms of minority groups, uh, politically marginalized groups, certainly up to and including the nineteen twenties when we get the role of women in American politics and society. I think there are many areas we can look at and will look at. Yeah in that's the what's exciting
0: that there's so much left to explore ex- and ex- we've sort of got the broad framework on. E-
1: exa- exactly, exactly. I think in future podcasts definitely uh, we re- I think we've both agreed that we really want to explore much further and deeper into into other parts of more social and cultural parts of history away from the big picture Dead white guy, exactly. Kind <laughs> of ideas of history.
0: Yeah. Um. So I mean, to move on to today's topic, and I mean, perhaps we'll get into a wee bit of what we've been chatting about. Mm. Um, as we look um at what we're discussing today, and af- as you revealed in a couple of podcasts ago, my affections for a certain Lyndon Johnson. Today's podcast, <coughs> um, we're going to be focusing on a subject that tends to challenge, to test my LBG affection on a regular basis. Um, Because today we're going to be looking at one of the most controversial conflicts and perhaps the first war that America ever lost in the Vietnam War. Uh, This brutal conflict in Southeast Asia left, I mean, a staggering number of Vietnamese casualties and citizens, sorry, soldiers and citizens dead estimates range from about one to three million, um, as well as 58,000 Americans died. And not to mention the casualties from other countries that were drawn into it, such as South Korea, Australia, China, Cambodia, laterally. As such, the Vietnam War polarised debate at home, um, while also causing friction with America's allies abroad. And it's kind of these two divisions that we'll probably touch upon today. Um,
1: Absolutely. I think think one thing that's important to emphasise often we hear about the Vietnam War from the American perspective. And fundamentally, that's what we're going to be looking at today is both the, the foreign and domestic context of that. But I think sometimes we are guilty of forgetting the significance of the impact of the Vietnam War on Vietnam mm. and on the Vietnamese people. As you as you said, millions of Vietnamese die in this war. And you know, it's not just that millions of people die in the war men women children soldiers fighting in the front lines you know ordinary people going about their their everyday lives but it's the long term legacy of the vietnam war as well for the vietnamese people you know the use of defoliants like agent orange uh, polluted the environment that still cause, right up to the present day birth defects and all sorts of health I was, issues I was for the say people that, of i mean if,
0: if you want to google uh, like you know vietnamese you know chemical like you know survivors you will see some images of what it's done to human beings yeah. I mean I, I always I, I've always said about Vietnam it always surprised me that Vietnam seems to have moved on uh, you know and maybe that's because essentially they won yeah uh, well, they yeah. Win, they win this
1: war mm. um but I, I do so I, think, I do think it's important to yeah. to re-emphasize the sheer disparity in the number of casualties on both sides as you say about 58,000 American deaths. Which is no small number. I mean, I'm not for a moment diminishing. No. You know the what well, all those soldiers who died. You know were doing many serving their country for the with the best of intentions. Uh, but I think it's about that 58,000 versus. I mean a, a midway estimate two million Vietnamese dead. I mean that's a big difference yeah. between the two. So I think it's, it's important to start off on that note that the impact on despite the fact we're going to be looking at America and the American. You know experience of the war the impact the impact in vietnam and the, the number of vietnamese people who suffered uh, during the war is, is immense and dwarfs you know, how many casualties america sustained
0: yeah definitely and i think it's a good point to note um so today i think because we've done it we've already done a couple of podcasts that kind of look at the 60s so we're going to try and kind of move most of what we discussed today will be very kind of late 60s into the early 70s during the presidency of richard nixon
1: can uh, I just interrupt yeah. you there, Mark? You mean you're actually saying we're going to spend less time looking at Lyndon Johnson?
0: It's, it's tough. But, but uh, I, I can I see think, this is hard for you. Yeah, no, no. I think in this regard, I'm happy to not talk about Johnson ah, because, as I said, yes. this is a part of the test my effect Because this is
1: the one that makes Johnson look bad, doesn't it?
0: Yes, yes. We can't have that at all, can we? But to, to get back to it, so before we move on to that, though, I think it's worth acknowledging some of the basics of the Vietnam War. So, I mean, America's involved... From since World War II, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was arguably the first president that has to deal with the problem in Vietnam. I'm not going to go into all those issues because we don't have the time. But generally, when you think of the Vietnam War, you think of when Johnson escalates in 1965 and sends a lot more troops, explicitly troops, there to fight a war, um, whereas suppose before they'd supposedly been advisors, and I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. uh, right now for the benefit of podcast listeners, until... 1974 75 is when the Vietnam War ends, and you have that. The, the, the sort of calamitous scene of US troops and supporters of, of you know South Vietnamese government trying to flee on helicopters. And um, the famous as, image of the, the yeah. roof
1: of the US embassy in Saigon as people queuing up to try and escape.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Malcolm, try and put it into context. Why is America in Vietnam? Like, why does not just Johnson escalate, but why is almost like 95% of the foreign policy establishment advising Johnson as well want this war in Vietnam? Why do they want it?
1: So there's a, I mean, the context of, as you pointed out, going back to World War II very briefly, the communist, socialist, the Viet men uh, under, under Ho Chi Minh have been fighting against the Japanese occupiers. Vietnam during World War Two, and essentially there's a there's a tacit understanding almost that if they help the fight against Japan, then that, that will some way gain their freedom. And the war ends, and famously uh, Ho Chi Minh issues the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, which is modelled on the U.S. Declaration of Independence. The wording is almost intact, yeah. but subtly and interestingly different. Uh, we don't have much time to go into it. However, what happens is that Britain is involved in this, because Britain is the main power. in so once Japan has been hit, the Britain has, you know, been the predominant power prior to World War II in this part of the world with India and, and, and you know, the Mali states, mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, Britain essentially goes back in, uses Indian troops and V-armed Japanese troops to go in and try and disarm and suppress the Viet Minh to, and allows the French colonial occupiers of Indochina back in. And so... And what so, do you
0: mean by Indochina? That's, that was Vietnam, what would, Laos and...
1: Yeah, what would we, ref- we refer to as Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, kind of that that kind of area, the peninsula that kind of comes down there. Yeah. And the French are allowed back in. So the former colonial power allowed back in. And France then fights a fairly brutal colonial war to try and keep hold of Indochina. Now remember, this is the time of post-World War II. This is the period of decolonization. The old empires are collapsing, you know, primarily Britain, France, Belgium, the Portuguese empire, Mm -hmm. although it's not really referred to as an empire, and that hangs on for a long time. But decolonization in Africa and Asia is taking place. Britain uh, finally gives up on India, and Mm -hmm. there's a partition of the Raj in forty-seven, So freedom and independence is in the air. And that's what the Viet Minh and the Vietnamese people are fighting for. But the French are fighting to to hold on to their their empire. They're,
0: They're backed by America. The French. They're, they're yeah. backed
1: by America by the end of the war. So about fifty-three, fifty-four, Uh America is funding the French war in Indochina. They're providing 90% of all, all the money mm-hmm. uh, for this war. And it ends, essentially, the denouement of the entire thing is uh, the French foreign legions defeat in the Battle of Dien Bien-Fu. Yeah. yeah. Where they are just destroyed. And that's basically the last hurrah for for France. And so basically
0: and at this point this is all part of the Truman administration's policy of containment in the Cold War. Like of containing communism.
1: Exactly. I mean the America, if we can talk about American government policy in general terms at this time, is is anti colonial. You know, stands with the decolonizing nations unless importantly those decolonizations decolonize decolonizing nations threaten to become communist. Because we have the context of the Cold War. So, this policy of containment, containing communism. The American governments support the British effort against communist insurgency in the Malay states uh, throughout the nineteen, starting in the late 40s and into the 1950s. So, it's happening at roughly the same time. And they support the French war against communist air quotes uh, forces in Indochina, Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So, it's fighting against communism. Containment penning communism and stopping it spreading to other countries
0: and so basically from from this point onwards the u.s slowly becomes slightly more dips a toe into vietnam then dips another toe and then all of a sudden they've got a foot a whole leg and um what well, before i butcher this analogy um we come to obviously we discussed with uh with fraser at the last podcast the kind of role kennedy had and how it was debated how he was going to yeah. take things but I, th- I think we'll, we'll pa- bypass that debate today. All, all the basic fact stands that in, the, in 1964, Johnson gets Congress to pass the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which basically gives the president all war powers he needs without ever having to declare war. And I think we should just in... br- very
1: briefly say how the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution comes about, because American destroyers conducting missions in the Gulf of Tonkin off the mm. coast of Vietnam, uh, particularly the USS Maddox uh, is one of them, are attacked, allegedly, by North, boats again. North Vietnamese mm-hmm. torpedo boats. But there's questions over we, whether these attacks ever act, act, actually happen. There's a lot of supposition. It's, it's tired. Ec-
0: echoes of remember the main. Yeah,
1: <laughs> tired, stressed out crews. Uh You know, you just get wrong problems with the command and control communication, the information that's been fed back to Washington, all that kind of thing. But it looks like North Vietnamese too. For those in charge in Washington, it looks like North Vietnam has attacked American Navy ships. And therefore, that gives them the opportunity to pass the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which allows, effectively, America to go to war in Vietnam.
0: And only two senators in the entire Senate vote against it. So, I mean, it's it's largely a bipartisan. Everybody's like, yep, that's fine.
1: Um, Um, Initially, it's an air campaign. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's a massive bombing campaign. Mm -hmm. And then troops get brought in. Yep. Initially to protect the air bases, yeah, but then to be used in offensive yep. ground. And I mean,
0: Johnson says in the '64 election, he says, "I don't want American boys to be fighting what Asian boys should be fighting." Yeah, um, and this will obviously be held against them when only about six months later, you know, Operation Rolling Thunder begins, and then there's a troop escalation later on in '65 when you know th- hundreds, you know, thousands of troops are sent. To, and I think to that's, to that's, that's an
1: important part of the Vietnam War is the air campaign because it's huge. Absolutely vast. There's a whole series of well, if we think Well, if we
0: think of the images of the Vietnam War that you would associate with it, first of all, you have the helicopters, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have there's countless videos of US like uh, air, air fighters dropping, like you see the bombs being dropped. You yeah. do see what the damage they do, but you just see there's countless videos of it, and that's one of the main images yeah. as well. Um, but essentially, America's got itself into a war that it doesn't know how to win. Or, at least, the conservatives would argue that they didn't actually try hard enough to win. Because that's one of the things that Johnson will always be criticized for, that he was just sort of conducting the war just enough so that he wouldn't be called soft on communism, he wouldn't be you know, a pe- like a charged with appeasement, but he wasn't pursuing the war um, to an extent which could win it.
1: Yeah, well, and there's also problematic kind of structural yeah. things here in that, on one hand, you have the tactical air campaign, mm-hmm. which is, you know, fighter bombers, Navy aircraft, all that kind of thing. But you also have the other, one of the other enduring images of like these massive B-52 bombers dropping tens of tons of bombs at a time each onto onto Vietnam. And the trouble is those B-52s are, they're part of Strategic Air Command. They're not set up to do this job. They're set up to fight a nuclear war against the Soviet Union. We're not set up to fight a conventional bombing war against against the South Asian nations. So there's all sorts of. I mean, we won't go into that in detail. No, let, all we're, sorts of we, we, we shall. What is of military history yeah, at yeah. this point? And yeah. just
0: basically, like, can we maybe touch on a couple of other key aspects before we get into looking at the domestic yeah. side. So, so, basically, the Vietnam War um, is still going on when when Johnson relinquishes the presidency. Um, famously saying, you know, I, I shall not seek another term as your president. And when Richard Nixon comes in, he promises to Vietnami- Vietnamese the war, Vietnamization it's called, That mm. you get the Vietnamese to fight their own war um, afterwards. And he promises peace with honor, which makes absolutely no sense. And basically Nixon expands the war into Cambodia and... Gets nothing. The peace terms in 1973, is it, Yeah. are roughly the same that could have been gone in nice 1968. 1968. Yeah. So let's get into I know we should probably say that the peace terms were just ignored by the North Vietnamese uh, who ran into the South Vietnam a couple of years later and unified the country um, against the peace terms. So now that we've got the kind of major landmarks out of the way um, how, how do you view how the Vietnam War progress how how do you view it from a domestic sense do you do you think the majority of Americans were against this war
1: um well I mean it's kind of interesting in the, the there's a whole series of kind of Gallup polls and you can see the progression of American domestic objection to the war the war is a mistake America should not be involved in it so back in you know August 1965 24 percent of Americans think it's a mistake. Small number. April 1968, 48% of Americans think that it's a mistake.
0: Should should we contextualise that one? April 1968, Johnson's relinquished the presidency because of the Tet Offensive in January 1968. He's then been, he was then almost defeated in a primary in New Hampshire uh, by an anti-war candidate um, called Eugene McCarthy um, who had very little else to offer as a candidate, bar the fact he was against the Vietnam mm. War. So, and Johnson then puts a um, <coughs> sorry a bombing halt on Vietnam and relinquishes the presidency because he's basically, you know, his presidency is going down the tubes largely yeah. because of Vietnam. And yet, you're citing a Vietnam poll that says only forty-eight percent think it's a mistake to go there. So, where is the reservoir of support for the Vietnam that, War?
1: Well, I mean, that's forty-eight percent. That's half the population. Yeah, but it's not a majority. And there's still a sense in American you know, politic, political and public life about the, the idea of the domino theory. I mean, remember, we're still in the, in the Cold War. There's still a fear of the Soviet Union. There's this is the idea of the domino theory, that if we let Vietnam fall to communism, all these other states in that surrounding area, Malaysia, Indonesia, all, this stuff, all of Asia is going to fall to communism. And then that threatens Japan, the linchpin of American Pacific defence. It threatens India, uh, that's already making not your know, noises about being aligning itself with the Soviet Union, despite the fact that it's an, a non-aligned state. It has it makes treaties of friendship with the Soviet Union. So this fear of the Soviet Union of communism and the Domino Theory is a big influence on on why some people still support American action in Vietnam. It's not the yeah. entire story; it's just a part yeah. of it. I mean, I remember I remember Doctor
0: Hilfer here at the University of Edinburgh telling us uh, before that he once he went visited the LBJ Library. And one of uh, Johnson's old foreign skew, I think it was Walt Rostow when he was still alive, one of his foreign advisors was there, and he was still arguing that the domino theory was correct and that if they hadn't gone to war with Vietnam, then who knows what would have happened.
1: I I don't think I would really trust the word of Walt Rostow on, on that particular issue. A uh, tu- touch hawkish. Uh, I, I, would be... Very slightly <laughs> hawkish <laughs> was, was Walt Rostow. Uh, so April 68, 48% of people think it's a mistake. April 1970, 51%, now we have your majority, mm-hmm. think it's a mistake. January 1973, 60% think it's a mistake. So you can see a progression, an escalation. And you know, going back to the Tet Offensive, I always liked the quote in uh, Full Metal Jacket, I think one of the best films about Vietnam. I think it's a really good, good movie, the bit where the Tet Offensive has just happened. You know, this major North Vietnamese attack. On the South at the time, there's meant to be a ceasefire, uh, the Lunar New Year holiday, all that kind of thing, Tet. Yeah. Uh, and the lieutenant in charge of all the combat journalists, you know, is talking about what has happened. You know, the US embassy has been overrun, you know, all the bases that have been overrun. And he said, you know, you know, back at home, he said, you know, now it looks like even Walter Cronkite is going to say the war is now unwinnable. You know, I think that was the, you know, Walter Cronkite was trusted man in America. You know, he's saying, well, Cronkite's now going to say we're in a terrible situation, that's it, game over.
0: Yeah, well, that's what Johnson apparently says, you know, I've I've lost Cronkite, then I've lost the nation. I mean, I'm paraphrasing there, but that's... But I think it's it's a good
1: encapsulation of Cronkite, such an important figure. If he says the war's lost, then the war's effectively lost.
0: Yeah, and I mean, he really hedged to He he traveled to Vietnam and just, I think he implied that they were in a stalemate. He wasn't prepared to go on television and tell Americans they they were losing a war. He was prepared to say... Yeah, this isn't looking so fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: so what, I mean, turning uh, away from kind of like, you know, public you know perception of it, what happens, what's the experience of veterans who fought in Vietnam? They've been out in the jungles or they've been you know, flying aircraft over Vietnam, whatever they've been doing out there, they come home. What's their, I mean, what's their experience as war? the war is becoming increasingly unpopular?
0: Well, I think... The best way to encapsulate how I feel if you're a Vietnam vet, I think out of all the wars, if anyone asked me to fight in, and given how terrible a soldier would be, that doesn't really matter, but Vietnam would be the one that I would least like to fight in. I think it's a combination of things. First of all, while you're out there, it's a horrible what you, you're generally the most common thing you're doing is called humping the bunnies, i.e., you're walking forever and ever under the fear of sniper threat, if you're an American soldier, um, in horrible climate, um, and just a really unpleasant entire life. I mean, five over five, about 500,000 Vietnam veterans have been diagnosed since with having post-traumatic stress disorder, something that they didn't know at the time even existed. So many of them get dishonorably discharged for having post-traumatic stress disorder, which didn't entitle them to to, to, to counseling after it because they've been dishonorably Doesn't discharged. All the,
1: all the veterans benefits that they accept yeah. they don't get. Yeah.
0: Also, you come home and a lot of people are against this war. And I think it's hard for people to think about now because in America, soldiers are very much celebrated now. If you're, if you were against the Iraq war, you were against the war, but you most definitely made sure, sure that you were not against the soldiers. Um, and that's from, that comes from Vietnam because Vietnam veterans, a lot of them, were treated terribly when they came home. You know, I I just one veteran, when Jim Doyle um, said, you know, he said, when I got back, it was like I was invisible. People averted their eyes. I just wanted them to say something, anything. And there's lots of stories of, you know, veterans being spat upon, um, you know, and one of them complained, you know, that, you know, they were shooting the messenger Rather rather the like the people who were spitting upon them, who were who were calling them all these horrible names, were in were in essence taking out their anger on the powers that be on Vietnam
1: veterans. And I mean, I suppose what a point to make is that the vast majority of these soldiers didn't have any choice. They were drafted no. and sent to Vietnam. They, they never asked to go and fight there. A lot of them were just put in a uniform, given a rifle, and, you know, called... Go and defend the ramparts of freedom in Southeast Asia. You know, off you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. Um, I mean, it's not like, it's not like an all volunteer thing. And I I think they also had that experience of it was like returning to a different country for a lot of them. You know, I saw one interview to say, you know, he came home and he hadn't even realized that Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King had been shot while he was away. You know, so he came back to this just completely different, different country. Um, And it also must be noted that a lot of veterans go on to be anti war protesters themselves. A lot of them see what it's like out there and can't understand why America's fighting the war. I mean, a bright example of this is a movie Born on the Fourth of July, which is based on the Vietnam veteran Ron Kovic's book, um, the, the second in Oliver Stone's trilogy about the Vietnam War, which is a fantastic example of what the veteran experience was like. And I think another wee point to add in here is that Vietnam's come at a time where medical science has moved along. A lot of people, a lot of soldiers live who in previous wars would have died. So you have a lot of amputees coming home. You have a lot of people who face different challenges that society's never seen this many com- people come back in such a state. So, I, I mean, the Vien- Vietnam veteran experience, as I said, it was, it's one of the, the the least enjoyable is not the right word. To, war isn't generally enjoyable, but out of all the wars, I wouldn't have liked to have been part of the Vietnam War.
1: So, and when you know, when veterans come home from from Vietnam, especially when we get to the late 60s and into the 70s, I mean, there's huge cultural changes happening in America. We see, you know, the rise of you know new social movements, stuff like you know, second wave feminism is, is really becoming a, a big thing. You know, obviously, that's come out. Of, I mean, there are long term roots to that and all, yeah. all that kind of thing. The idea of a second wave of feminism, feminism has really never really died away. It's always been but, there.
0: Yeah, Betty Friedan's the, the feminist mystique. mystique uh,
1: even going back to uh, you know uh, Simone de Beauvoir, second sex. Yep. You know, late 40s, early 50s kind of thing. So, I mean, there's that. There's, from, like, 69 onwards, the, the gay rights movement really starts to take hold with the you know, the Stonewall yep. campaign coming out, the Stonewall riots and all that kind of thing. The rise of black power and that kind of, like, the civil rights movement. Completely is splintering.
0: Is splintering yeah. and
1: metamorphosing. You have, you know, black power, all that kind of thing. rise of uh, the continuing kind of involvement of the nation of Islam uh, all those kind of things. So there's, I mean, there's great change happening. And that, this, at the same time, you have mass anti-war protest mm-hmm. happening. You know, the, the big protest anti-Vietnam War. You, so it's an interesting you've culture. You've also got a very
0: way. heightened conservative backlash to everything that's going on. Mm. Um, you know, you have, you know, when Richard Nixon wins the presidency, one of the main things he's campaigning against is, you know, he, he wants law and order, um, a very loaded term, which we discussed on a previous podcast. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, America seems a fascinating place to be at the time, but also for many people, scary, many people not quite sure, you know, people returning to this society not quite sure how to act.
1: And is, I think, I mean, for, for me, if there's one kind of event that kind of encapsulate this kind of, the division between between protest, the counterculture, the kind of political engagement uh of many young people and students in America at the time, and the conservative backlash, it's all the stuff surrounding the the Kent State shootings. Yeah. In nineteen seventy one, where at Kent State University in Ohio, the National Guard opens fire on protesters protesting against the Vietnam War, and four of them are killed. Yeah. Leading to actually as a kind of point, one of the I think one of the iconic photographs of of the Vietnam War, which has nothing to do with Vietnam itself, but anti-war protest, the photograph of Mary Vecchio yep. leaning over the the body of Jeffrey Miller, who was one of the people who was shot, who wasn't an anti-war protester, who wasn't an mm-hmm. anti-war poste- pre- protester, and now Mary Vecchio was a fourteen-year-old runaway.
0: Yeah, she was fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, at, yeah. You just
1: who happened you had who had arrived there, and that's I think it's a fascinating. I mean, you, you see her howling in anguish over the, the body of Jeffrey Miller who was a student who just happened to yeah. happened to be there. And, I, you know, that's so Kent State, I think, is a really... Yeah, I, th- I think Kent
0: State's a fascinating moment. Um, it's the one that's always caught my eye about the Vietnam War uh, ever since I do it. I mean, it's it was almost, I remember doing it as a, as a master student, you know, and at the time I was trying to figure out, so let me get this straight, four members of a National Guard, you know, essentially a tool of the government, Killed four American students for protesting against the war. Non, like you know, not completely non-violently. They were throwing rocks and things, but you know, there was they were bringing rocks to a gunfight, um, and it was something really hard to get my head around. it I think it showed you how how divided America had become by this point. Because the it's not like this shooting leads to everybody going, "Whoa, well, okay, things have gone too far. We need to all unite as a nation." First of all, you have got Richard Nixon, the presidency, trying to divide people between what he calls bums, you know, these wealthier students that are able to go to university and are protesting against the war and they will to fight long the Long hair, war. flares, yeah. all that kind of thing, and, some and, of love. And what he calls heroes, you know, the people who are actually fighting the war. Um, and the, par- not, the yeah, parents of the people who are fighting yeah, the war as well. Yeah, no, it's often a class dimension to that mm. as well because you have, you know, it's often working class people that are fighting the war. I mean, and it's also disproportionately black people that are, are fighting the war when the draft was, was first there. But yeah, from Kent State, rather than people rallying around, um, you actually get an even bigger backlash. You and know, you,
1: you, I mean, is the famous quote about they were the most popular murders. murders in American history. Yeah, and yeah. what I mean, what well, a few it...
0: weeks before Ronald Reagan had said, you know, who's the governor of California at this mm. point? Had basically said, you know, if we need a bloodbath to get it over with, let's do it. Like you know, like that. So I, not quite got the exact quote right, but it's he basically implied that you know the anti-war protest was. And he uses the word bloodbath,
1: you know. So, I mean, four four students are killed in mm-hmm. what must be admitted are disputed circumstances yeah. about what actually is going on at the time at Kent State, what yeah. the circumstances of these shootings are. We know, you know, the, there had been mass protests.
0: There was like burning of some buildings the, on the campus. Reserve, Reserve
1: Officer Training Corps mm-hmm. building. Uh, the National Guard are brought in because the police can't really cope.
0: We should also point out the National Guard are generally Americans of the same age, they're, but yeah, probably of working class yeah. you know, environment.
1: And so these four protesters are killed, or not all protesters. Only two of them. Four yeah. students are killed,
0: and well, they were walking away as well, I think is generally accepted. Yeah.
1: Then there's a backlash against the protesters, against those who were killed. Yeah. And that's the real, that's one of the really interesting Yeah, I think the
0: hard hat riots, what, what you're talking about, are yeah. sort of lost a wee bit to history. Mm. Yeah, the, so John Lindsay, who's the, the, the mayor of New York at the time, um, a liberal Republican who's about to turn into a Democrat, he he flies the flag at half-mast, um, and I think it's in, in in Town Hall, or sorry, City Hall, and the uh, construction workers get wind of this um in New York and as the kind of anti-protesters anti-war protesters around city Hall they are attacked by these uh these these construction workers with their tools and everything you know while people are screaming you know America love it or leave it hmm. you know so that's a phrase that's sort of I think slightly born in during the Vietnam War
1: and again I mean there's this kind of you can see this. almost the, the attempts to divide America—the you, know, you know, white collar versus blue collar you yep. know, kind of thing going on. And what's next? I mean, you know, what's Nixon's response to the, the hard hat riots?
0: Nixon gives. I, I can't remember the exact thing he says, but he basically he doesn't endorse. The riots, like, cause his, his response to Kent State is as tepid as it could possibly, he sort of says, well, this is what happens when dissent can turn to violence. He doesn't offer some great apology on behalf of the American government. Mm-hmm. You know, it serves Nixon purposes. He's, he's trying to create the great silent majority, and that great silent majority is supposed to hate students. Um, and he's very effective. in mean, Nixon will win in a landslide in 1972 before Watergate comes along.
1: A, a huge landslide. And I just, I need to interject here, actually. I just realised that I, by a slip of the tongue, I, I think I might have said Kent State happened in 71 earlier. Oh, right. No, it's, 19, it's 1970. 70, we need yeah. to be clear. I just, don't know why I said that, but yeah. you know, we're talking about 1970 here. Yeah. I just, sorry, and, and I, felt, I felt I mean, needed to clear that up.
0: And I mean, the main thing that triggered the state, the, the protests at Kent State was Nixon's announcement that it was expanding bombing. I think that it was into Cambodia at this mm-hmm. time. Um, because the you know the Vietnamese were using Cambodia as a as a way to supply the supply yeah. their troops. Yeah, so I mean I, th- I think the biggest thing we can take from all this that it was one of the most divisive times in American history in, in terms of how it divided the domestic population. This was no World War II, where everyone remembered it as the good war, and Vietnam remains divisive. I mean people don't want to talk about it for a long time, and because of that we don't really see Vietnam represented. Unless, in allegory form, in movies and television shows, you know, there's not that much media uh, like or, or sorry cultural sources yeah. that the Vietnam War draws upon. I mean
1: I mean at the time you're right there are kind of allegorical representations of it. It's particularly uh more some of the more kind of like brutal westerns of the time that come around in the nineteen seventies. They're very I mean they draw very much on the Vietnam experience. You've
0: got MASH as well, which I mean, is ostensibly about the Korean Ki-or, War.
1: But it's really about Vietnam and you have some like science fiction films actually that draw but they're all couched in genre kind of tropes. And I mean you, you do get certain ones Taxi driver yeah. Takes the kind of the idea of the disturbed Vietnam. Exactly, it
0: takes on that negative image. Yeah,
1: and you know translates it into this story about you know urban America and all that kind of thing. In the late seventies, you have Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. which I mean, I, from a personal point of view, I think is the great Vietnam War. Really, I, I disagree. I disagree with you. What, what yeah. would you What would you say is the great Vietnam War movie?
0: I don't know if I'd say there is one that stands above the rest. I think there's a collection of really, really good ones. Um, I, I quite like Platoon. Um, I say
1: I dislike Platoon. Really, that's that, that's yeah. the one that
0: Vietnam veterans say is the one that they rec- most recognise the conflict in. Mm. I think Platoon's really, uh, is it the other Oliver Stone one, born on the 4th of July, I think
1: is I suppose fantastic. It's important to, to mention, Oliver Stone, has, he was in Vietnam. He was a yeah. veteran of the conflict.
0: Uh, coming Home, I've got a soft spot for. Right, right. Although they slightly ruined Coming Home by putting Jane Fonda in the lead role. And Vietnam veterans weren't were particularly fond of, the, yeah. of Jane Fonda. Hanoi
1: Jane, not very popular. Yeah,
0: Jane Fonda went to and was pictured with an anti-air aircraft like, missile gun. G- yeah. Which, uh, yeah.
1: And I I mean, some of the, the films of the 80s, I mean, well, as we're talking about the films of the 80s, like Full Metal Jacket that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I think is an interesting kind of one about the, you know, the dehumanising effect of military training. Yeah. And what it leads to. One of the kind of slightly more, forgotten if I can use such a term hamburger hill oh yes it came yes. out at the same time which I actually mm. think is a is an interesting little movie it's not the same scale and budget it shows the brutality it's, yeah. it's I, I, hamburger hamburger hill is quite an interesting one and the one that my favorite film in vietnam aside from apocalypse now is aliens explain it's about it's about the vietnam it's about the vietnam war it's uh this group of american soldiers Gung-ho, they're the biggest military power there is. They think they can just go into a hostile environment and win. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely confident of winning. And they're up against an unseen, relentless enemy that they can't defeat. They can't track down. They don't know where it's coming from and Aliens is very much yeah. an analogy for the Vietnam War yeah
0: I'm sure if Fraser were here as well he would be telling us about how Star Wars is about the Vietnam War but since I actually have to admit I've never seen Star Wars I can't actually comment
1: on that it's not worth your time I'm going to offend lots of Star Wars <laughs> fans here that are much better science fiction Unsubscribe, movies than Star buttons Wars buttons getting clicked yeah, everywhere I can our, <laughs> our listenership is going to drop like a stone as anyone who likes Star Wars is going to ignore us from now on yeah exactly
0: but yeah I mean I think as well as movies as well Vietnam's fantastic in terms of the literature it produces I mean I've got Particularly, for Tim O'Brien's books, which sort of this and it and it kind of it, Vietnam seems to lend itself to this uh, this kind of I'm losing it, this genre of uh, of of writing that sort of blends fact and fiction to the idea of being to reveal a larger truth. Yeah. You know, you have Michael Harris' dispatches and Tim O'Brien's books are all the same where. You don't know whether the things they talk about happened, but they're trying to get a larger truth of what it was like to be in Vietnam. Yeah, I think. I mean, I
1: I, I think Dispatches is a great book. I really, really like Dispatches. There's a lot of great literature about Vietnam. Going, I mean, going back to the the 1950s. Mm-hmm. My favourite book about Vietnam is uh, Grey Greene, Green, The Quiet American, mm-hmm. which is a great book about the very early days when you know. It's not quite so clear what's going on with the United States and Vietnam in the nineteen fifties and all that kind of thing. And I think "Quite American" is a fantastic book. I would encourage anyone to read that.
0: Yeah, um, but I think, you know, funnily enough, the the thing that got me interested in the Vietnam War was when I was a kid. I was obviously brought up on loads of American television shows, and there was always one character who referred to being back in Nam, and I never knew what it meant until I was like, I was, I was like eighteen, nineteen. It wasn't, wasn't
1: shot for Cheltenham.
0: No, 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 it was not. <laughs> um. But yeah, so Vietnam definitely n- didn't disappear from the culture, and I think, uh, especially during the nineties and the, and, the, and the early nineties, uh, but we're perhaps getting more distance from it. It's becoming a further away conflict, um, and maybe you know not as important to the American psyche. But just to finish with, I've always been interested. So. Obviously, you, you teach a course on, on the special relationship between the United States and Question the United marks. Kingdom. Question mark after yes, the yes, yes, yes. I, th-
1: I think you conclude
0: that there isn't really one. Oh, no, no, there no. Is. no, no. I think there is. Okay. But okay, it's not but, what everyone thinks it is. Okay. Maybe. That's definitely another podcast. But I I want to know, why is Britain not in this war? Because obviously Britain will go to war with America and all the Gulf conflicts. And it's probably, it was there with the McCrea. Why is Britain, and uh, it's always just been an interest of mine? Why, why is Britain not oh, a well,
1: A whole range of reasons. Uh, one, when Johnson really kicks off the war in Vietnam, Britain is already fighting a war, land war in Asia, in that people forget that there's the confrontasi, the, the confrontation between recently independent Malaysia, formerly the Malay States part of the British Empire, which is now Malaysia, and Indonesia on its southern border and there's a fairly violent conflict so britain supports malaysia in that so in the mid 60s britain's fighting a land war in asia already it's actually the the malaysian confrontation is the biggest deployment of troops british troops after world war 2 more 30,000 british troops more uh, than korea i sent more than more than korea uh, so the, already fighting a war in malaysia but britain is well On one hand, you have the government of Harold Wilson come in. And Harold Wilson isn't entirely against the war in Vietnam. He just doesn't want Britain to be involved. Lyndon Johnson keeps, and his advisors keep saying, you know, you know, anyone, anything, a platoon of bagpipers, (laughs) just show your support for us. And they're like, no, no way. I mean, there's protests in London and everything, isn't there? There's There's... protests all over Europe against Vietnam. but part of it is the British economy, Britain can't afford to fight it. There was an agreement that you know Britain was going to fight in Malaysia, on the side of Malaysia, but America wouldn't directly step into that because America has its own worries in Southeast Asia. So Britain would deal with that. So there, there's a whole complex thing. The British economy is tanking. It can't afford another war. Constant devaluation of the pound. There's the stance of the Parliamentary Labour Party and the Grassroots Labour Party on the Vietnam War. When we get into the era of the 1970s, we get into Heath, Heath is much more rhetorically supportive of the American minister conflict, 30th, yeah, yeah. conflict in Vietnam. But still, there's no desire to send British troops to fight in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. Because at this point, Britain has undertaken what's called the East of Suez decision. Mm-hmm. In 1967, it's critical that the British government is discussing pulling back all of its military forces forces from east of the Suez Canal. So Britain will no longer be involved in Asia at all. And that's that decision gets taken in 67-68. They're going to pull all British forces back by 75. But in 1968, they also make the decision, Britain's so broke, we need to do it quicker, we're going to pull them back by 71. So Britain is withdrawing from the old imperial territories. And that's a big part of it, is the east of Suez. Decision. Britain, Britain is trying to get out of this hugely expensive commitment to defending Asia, defending lands beyond the Suez Canal. So it's a very complex situation, and although there is rhetorical support and a certain amount of sympathy for the American position in the sixties and the seventies, no but no, to... there is absolutely no desire to commit ground forces or air forces or naval forces to, to Vietnam.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. But um, I think we've I think we've done well to. To muddle through today with uh, this being the end of term while we're constantly marking for the last two weeks we've and, had quite the same preparation time we normally indeed, have so uh, we apologize to our listeners if it's been slightly less structured than normal um, but we hope you've you've enjoyed that discussion about Vietnam and we're, we're going to be back in a couple of weeks and um, we're going to be picking up where Malcolm left off at the end of uh, the, the previous term when we had a discussion about nuclear fallout and we're going to be looking at the kind of how it's represented in popular protest yeah
1: we'll look at uh, kind of like continue exactly continue where we left there look uh, a little bit at you know pro, uh, anti-nuclear protest about how issues of fallout and the idea of nuclear weapons feed into popular culture as well and also think a little bit about changes in kind of nuclear issues as we move from the 50s into the 60s and the 70s and that should be that should be that'd be enough for one podcast i think I think that might just cover it. And, Excellent. and
0: so after that, um, we'll be looking at a whole new kind of programme. We've got a lot of ideas for how to kick on the podcast after this, and we will hope you stay with us while we do that. So thanks again.
1: Cheerio for me. And goodbye for me.